the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'm looking at property and my guest is Rick Larkin, Executive Director of the Irish family-run developer Twinlight. It currently has a portfolio of housing and apartment developments in Dalkey, Clongriffin and Stepaside in Dublin. Having dipped his toes in banking after leaving college, Rick then joined the family property business which he now runs with his brother. Twinlight describes itself as the best property company in Dublin. Rick tells me why. He also talks about the challenges and frustrations of having his building sites closed in the lockdown and discusses the economics of building apartments and why selling them as a job lot to institutional investors is often the only option available. Rick also outlines his frustrations with the planning process, gives his thoughts on the future of housing design post-pandemic, and offers some predictions on Irish house prices and rents. Now, uh, Rick Larkin, thank you for joining Inside Business. Maybe you could just tell us uh, what property developments you have underway in Dublin at the minute and how the government restrictions are currently uh, affecting the construction sites there. Thanks for having me, Kieran. Yeah, we have two uh, construction sites that were underway when the government restrictions were brought in. The first one is in Clongriffin in North Dublin, at 23 North. It's a uh, collection of 282 uh, rental apartments that was around about 12 months away from completion uh, in January when the restrictions were brought in. And the other one is in Dalkey, South Dublin, collection of 101 apartments that were in the very early stages of construction. Again, both sites are now shut down as a result of the restrictions. Right, okay. And yet some construction is going on, isn't it? Uh, some necessary construction, they say, but it's a bit confusing as to what's deemed necessary and what's not? Well, it would appear to be confusing, um, particularly to us when it can be termed that uh, large multinational companies are necessary, but uh, homes for people are, are are not necessary unless it's social housing. It strikes me as a little bit of a double standard to say that uh, people who are on the social housing list are more important than people who otherwise would want uh, to, to rent or to buy uh, housing. It also strikes me as a bit strange that we would prioritise uh, multinational construction projects when there's a housing crisis. Seems to me to be the most pressing issue that we have apart from the pandemic here. So I'm not entirely sure what the policy rationale is for that, but above my pay grade, unfortunately. So all things being equal, Rick, you know, if we hadn't had the pandemic, how many units would you have hoped to have built and completed uh, this year? This year, probably about 300 Next year, uh, we would be on site with about 500 units, but given how long it takes to construct them, it will probably be into 2023. That's now looking like it's going to be pushed into 2024. We're, we're a relatively small player in the market, so you know our construction is not effect on supply apart from it in very local circumstances. But when you add all the other construction companies together, you're talking about a loss of tens of thousands of units this year. And I would say worse next year uh, because there's going to be projects that that just didn't start and because of various seasonality factors like uh, the planting season or the nesting season for birds where trees can't be uh, cut down and and that you're going to have a pretty pretty long tail effects to this, I would say. And a lot of foreign nationals, I would imagine, work in the industry, Rick, doing various, uh, filling various roles. I'm just wondering, obviously, a lot of people went home to their uh, home countries during the pandemic, probably thinking it was only going to be four, five, six weeks of duration and then they'd be back. But uh, obviously it's taken a lot longer than that. How, how has that affected construction and how has it affected your industry? Well, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, a lot of people did go back, uh, particularly to Eastern Europe at Christmas. 
you know, that's a normal thing. Last year it would have been the same. People tend to go back for a period is a, is a very important thing culturally in Eastern Europe. So we would have expected some delays to having those people come back in January. Um, but now they've been back in their home countries for months. It's possible they will have obtained employment there and won't want to come back. Ireland, I believe, is one of the only countries in Europe that has shut down construction during the pandemic. So it's entirely plausible that those guys will go work in, in any number of other European countries where there are no restrictions for construction workers and where labour is in is in short supply. It's not just here. Across across Europe, uh, construction labour is in short supply. So we are really shooting ourselves in the foot with the, with continuing the shutdown. Yeah, and yet the government, I suppose, is is trying you know as much as possible to bring the numbers right down. Uh, obviously, while in parallel ramping up the vaccination program in the hope that, you know, depending who you listen to and what time frame um, they're talking about, somewhere around September, maybe, um, the, the vast bulk of the population will be vaccinated and we can get back to some sort of normality. Yeah, well, here's hoping. Um, I, I'm not a doctor and I, I know that there's there's very real uh, hardships out there. My, my partner is a doctor and I, I get to see every evening what the reality of the healthcare system is. The only thing I will say is, you know, construction operated from the end of the first lockdown all the way through to January. There was no massive spike in infections until hospitality reopened. You know, so there has not been wide scale in, uh, infection on construction sites. And even as it stands right now, 40 percent of the construction industry that's based around social housing and some of the, the large infrastructure projects is operating with no spike in infection. So I think it's quite clear from the evidence that construction does not lead to, to large uh, spreading of, of disease. And because of the, the nature of it, guys are wearing PPE to begin with. They're outside for the most part. They are working fairly separately. It's not a you know high density environment like a, a food factory might be. So it does appear to me to be a little bit of a blunt instrument to simply say, well, you know, numbers are high, so we have to close everything down, while at the same time saying, well, social housing is okay, and, you know, building factories for computer chips is okay, and the children's hospital is okay, and road building is okay, but, you know, housing, no, we don't want that. Seems to me to be a little bit of double standard. Rick, just tell us a little bit about yourself and about uh, Twin Life. How did you get into the property game in the first place? It's a family business. Whether I had a choice in the matter or not, I'm not entirely sure. I uh, went to, to college studying business and I worked all my summers in a, a previous uh, a bank that shall not be named uh, on the corporate deposits desk. It no longer is around. And then in, in college, I went into property finance as part of a work placement uh, for uh, what was then first active and later OBS. From there, I went into the family business just at the start of the crash. Um, and uh, we, we had a, a mess uh, to deal with there for a number of years. So I, I work in the business now with my brother and my father is still involved um, as a as a chairman. And uh, that's kind of the, the background to it. So that bank you, you don't want to mention, I presume that's Anglo-Irish Bank, is it? It is Anglo-Irish Bank, yeah. And it, it um, you know, it, it was a great, I was only a teenager working in there as an intern, getting people coffee. Um, they were really, really good to me, really nice people. And it's a pity that it turned into what it did. But I, I had a very good experience there the couple of summers I worked in it. Right. And you later worked for Ulster Bank. You're a real lucky charmer in the banking sector. Yeah, people would say that. Uh, First Active, I think, also got wound down. I'm not, it was absorbed or, or wound down. And then Ulster Bank's obviously just announced its its withdrawal. Um, so is it me? You know, I, <laughs> I was very junior 
in all cases. But I learned a lot from it. You know, I, I got to see, particularly in, in RBS, the froth uh, that went on the property market around about 2004 and 2005 when, you know, there were various clients, even in, in the first active book, which is very small, that had huge exposure. Um, and it, it didn't appear that there was any kind of a business plan around any of it. I was just a, a kid, so I didn't really realize what I was seeing. But looking back in hindsight now, it was all a bit mad. And when the crash came, how did that affect the business? We were quite uh, lowly levered, so we didn't have um, a huge amount of, of debt and we didn't have um, many assets in Ireland. Our, our business was focused in the UK at the time. Thankfully, we didn't have to uh, enter into any kind of uh, insolvency or, or restructuring um, with lenders. It, it basically got uh, got dealt with over time. And when we had to, we had to kind of start from scratch uh, at the end of that, so around about 2013, um, we we started uh, reinvesting our, our capital into development assets and, and growing the business from there. But it, it, it's a completely different business now. We were um, mostly focused on doing single family housing, you know, mid income stuff in, in Dublin and then commercial property in London. We don't operate in London anymore. And now we're focused solely on uh, Dublin. Right. OK. Now, on the web, um, you claim to be the best property company in Dublin. I'm just wondering how you stand over that claim. What makes Twin Light the best property company in Dublin? Well, we're one of the few property companies, if there's even any, uh, that are completely vertically integrated. So we design, build and operate assets, uh, which is very unusual. We have our own construction team. We have our own engineers. We have our own asset managers. So we provide a service uh, to end investors that is unparalleled in the market. So 13 North, which is our, our largest PRS development, that was completed uh, last year in July, two months ahead of schedule. And that includes the work stoppage that was brought about by the pandemic. So it was running four months ahead of schedule. That's 376 apartments that was constructed in a little bit over uh, 20 months. Again, we launched that during a pandemic when our core target market, which is tech workers coming in from overseas, stopped coming. We still managed to, to lease up that building. So I would say that so far, are, are, are proving proving that out, but it's a, it's a long long run game, and we hope to be in it for a very long time. Now you're building a, a lot of apartments, and a lot of the apartment schemes that have been built in Dublin over the last few years, they seem to have ended up in the ownership of institutional investors. Whether it's an IRES or a Kennedy Wilson that we know about, or maybe you know a pension fund from a European country. Uh, or some other class of institutional investor. So it's taken it away from the, you know, the, these are not sold into the market individually. They're sold as a job lot and they're then rented into the market by uh, the institutional investor. And you guys have participated in that kind of arrangement, haven't you? We have, and we've participated in that because it's the only show in town. Uh, I think that there's a lot of of confusion about about this uh, in 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 the market in the media. Um, I know this this term cuckoo funds was brought up as though these uh, these international funds are coming and taking housing away from first time buyers. But the CSO had put out figures uh, last week from their housing survey that showed just eight percent of first time buyers considered buying an apartment. So that just goes to show that if you go and try and produce apartments, uh, you're not going to be able to sell them individually. Um, and not in a timeline that is going to work uh, for, for an investment case. And we've seen this time and time again. There's been several schemes that were set up and launched to individuals that ultimately failed and were then packaged and sold to institutional investors. 
So I would say that that's more of a symptom of the demand dynamics in Ireland, where first-time buyers want their house and their little garden. Uh, the three-bed semi, it, it reigns supreme as it always did. It doesn't appear to be changing, despite what you know many people would say is an imperative for it to change and for people to, to live in apartments and to densify cities and to make better use of transport. It's not happening. So the only way that we can produce apartments, which are badly needed for the rental market, and there's a lot of people who choose to rent rather than buy and need to rent, um, is to is to sell them to, to investors who come in and are, are looking for a return, who are willing to put a very good service in place. Uh, large-scale professional landlords provide a service that's kind of unparalleled in terms of maintenance, fairness, uh, making sure that the tenants are treated right. Um, and as I say, it's the only way finance these projects without institutional investors. It's just that simple. So you had a, a something called the Trinity Collection in Clongriffin, 372 units, and you sold that to an institutional player, um, Tristel uh, Capital Partners, I think I'm correct in saying. Yeah, that's right. When did you actually buy that site? We bought that site in 2018. Um, so it had been there with planning on it since 2014 or 15, I'm, I, I think, uh, had been bought by, by a UK investor. And that site sat there without any construction taking place on it. We bought it, immediately saw the opportunity uh, to, to sell it on to an investment fund and then unlocked financing for it. Uh, had we not done that, it just would still be sitting there as a dusty uh, patch of ground. And the demand from the institutional investors, obviously a lot of, there have been a lot of transactions in the last few years. I'm just wondering about the, the yields. Are they still holding up, um, you know, particularly in the, in the pandemic? And is there still the same level of demand now from overseas investors? The yields seem to have declined uh, quite significantly since when we saw that building first. There hasn't been a huge amount of transactions recently, but the ones that have taken place have shown, again, very, very tight yields. Demand for residential investments across Europe is very, very high. There's obviously a lot of quantitative easing going on and interest rates are, are at zero or negative across most of the world at this point. So the demand for yield um, goes on. The investment case for Ireland is very good. Most uh, European investors are very positive on the prospects for Ireland's economy, uh, both before and, and, and now even still with the pandemic um, ongoing the prospects because of demographics and because of the nature of the employment base here seems to interest a lot of people. So we are seeing a lot of a lot of demand still. It's it's very tricky to get new projects off the ground with the restrictions that are in place. Obviously nobody can travel into the country, which is a problem. And then when they do come into the country, we can't bring them to any construction sites, uh, even if they did. So that's been that's been a bit of a delay, but there have been some projects that have have uh I think your your papers even covered a few sales that have taken place over the last six months that are very big numbers and have uh, have very tight yields. Will they go any lower? It's hard to say. Um, I think a lot will depend on how quickly we exit the pandemic um, and how how the economies across Europe and across the world are doing after that point. But there does seem to be a pretty solid demand. And of the units that you have in your portfolio now and that you're planning to develop, Rick, how many of those? will be, again, sold on to institutional players or how many will, will go to the, um, uh, will be sold individually on the market? Right now, it's hard to say. I would say that the very large schemes in the suburbs are, are likely to all be sold to institutional buyers simply because we, we couldn't construct them, we couldn't finance them. 
we couldn't uh, sell them uh, in any kind of numbers to justify selling them individually. It is possible that some of the smaller boutique schemes will go to individual buyers. It will really depend on economic conditions at the time. But we'll have seen recently there's been a few schemes, I, I think one in Greystones uh, that was was sent uh, was set up to for the trade down market. Uh, that sat there for for a while. Um, they got some individual sales, and then in reality, that the demand wasn't there, so that has flipped back into being an institutional product now. That will give you pause to think that while there is a small level of demand uh, in in you know well off sort of established areas in Dublin, it's nowhere near the scale that it needs to be to justify building an apartment building. Um, and that and that's kind of the problem we have. We could set up a 100-unit scheme somewhere and sell 25 apartments in it and think we were great. But then the other 75 apartments, you know, somebody needs to, needs to own those. And the nature of the institutional capital is that it wants to own the whole thing so that it can control it and make sure that the service charges are paid and that the cleaning is done and the maintenance is done properly. So it's a tricky environment. There, there doesn't seem to be a lot of demand um, even in, in in wealthier areas of Dublin for for uh, apartments. Yeah, sure. Do you accept this narrative that we have a housing crisis? I think there is certainly parts of the property market that are, are in distress. Uh, I know that affordability is a real problem for, for a large number of people in Ireland, and that is a crisis. I think that a lot of the time, the word crisis can be used in a very all-encompassing way to, to in, in effect, make it out that the entire market is is completely uh, failing. In reality, the rental market is getting turned around. Supply is coming. It takes a number of years because these projects are complicated and they're very slow to get off the ground. I don't want to take up the whole day talking about planning delays and, and utility delays and things like that, but it, it makes a real, it creates a real barrier for people trying to develop apartment schemes, but it is turning around. The housing market uh, for single family housing, we're not in that business, but what, from what I can see as a casual observer, it seems to me a little bit crazy that we have on the one hand, uh, all these barriers to supply. On the other hand, we have a government who are, and the successive governments are providing subsidy to first-time buyers to meet high prices, which are generated by the barriers to supply that are in the gift of government to solve, while simultaneously uh, providing funding to affordable housing bodies to go out and compete for those houses with those very same first-time buyers that are being subsidised. While all that's taking place, the sort of misdirection is blame the institutional investors. They're the ones who are coming in. Call them cuckoo funds. Institutional investors make up 10% of the housing market. Affordable housing bodies make up 20%. So they're twice the size. First-time buyers are 33%. So I think that rather there, there being a broad crisis across the entire market, there is a problem with supplying what people want, which is the three-bed semi. There's a national policy in place that doesn't want to have low-density housing um, near cities or on transport corridors because of the issues that come with that, with old traffic and, and, and things like that. And it's not efficient from a from an infrastructural standpoint, and I get that. But there also has to be an acceptance that either you're going to incentivize people to change how they want to live, or you're going to accept that the product that they want to live in 
has to be catered for. Successive governments haven't grasped the nettle on this. And it's not being grasped right now either. And we just look at it and say, it's, it's a giant case of blaming the foreigners when in reality, they're coming in to supply a needed version of our part of the market, which is rental housing. I mean, rental housing is very, very important. Some people want to rent. Some people have no choice but to rent. There are people who come here for three, four years before moving back to their home countries in Europe. They're not going to go buy a house. They need to be catered for and they shouldn't be second class citizens. They should get a good service and they shouldn't have to pay through the nose for it. So I think rather than it, it being a case of, of, of blame, I think there needs to be a very detailed look taken at the blockages that exist in the supply of housing. And that is cost is one thing and that's not necessarily in the gift the government solve, but all the other delays around, around planning and around utility connections should are solvable. And they're solvable if somebody just wants to sit down and say, we're doing it and bedam the consequences or the commentary uh, from people that say that their rights are being trampled upon. Um, I'm not so sure that that's happening. I don't have a lot of optimism that it will happen. And I think that this, if you want to call this a broad crisis, I think it's going to last for years uh, until there's any real appetite for change. In financial terms, what's the difference to you from selling to an in international institutional investor, let's say, as opposed to selling uh, each unit individually on the market? Well, it's hard to say on a, on a broad scale, but if you take one example, which is our project in Clongriffin, 1-3 North, that's 376 apartments. It's well publicized in the media that that was sold for 140 million euros. Uh, and that was in a, single, in a single lot. If we, and we did do this at the time for our business planning, we, we asked uh, agents to give us a breakdown as to what we would get for those apartments if we sold them individually. And that, when you add all of those uh, figures up, uh, would show a loss uh, of about 15 million euros, which is roughly the, the value uh, of, of land. So it would mean that essentially the only price we could get for those apartments would be the cost, the hard cost of constructing them, ignoring the cost of land, which of course isn't free, and ignoring the cost of capital or the cost of risk or profit. So we would not make a profit, we'd make a loss, and we'd have to get the land for free. So that can just give you a demonstration as to how hard it is to make projects like that stack up. In other parts of Dublin, that might not be the case. You might have a situation where individually the apartments are worth more than they are as a group, because if you go to somewhere like Balls Bridge, for example, you know, rents aren't double what they are in Clongriffin, but the land price is more than double. So it possibly makes sense there that you can sell apartments and make a profit individually. But the problem you have is that in order to do that, you, you need sufficient demand. And that doesn't appear to be there. We had another project that we did sell individually in Ballsbridge in 2015, 2016, um, embassy court it was 17 apartments now we sold those 17 apartments but we had I think 18 bidders so we didn't have 150 people coming in to buy these things we had one for everybody and that was great we sold our project and we, we were happy with that but it dispels the myth that's out there that there's a sort of wall of people who want to trade down from their their large houses into apartments and that have money to spend there's countless examples of this uh, across Dublin and it, it just comes down to the fact that Irish people don't want to own apartments to live in. And they never really did. I mean, even during the boom, the vast majority of apartments that were getting purchased 
were being bought by individual investors, um, you know, as buy to lets. That's all changed now. There was obviously huge tax uh, changes made uh, during the crash that made it very unattractive to do that. And a lot of people exited that market. And all institutional investors have really done is replace those guys. They come in and they, they make up 10% of the market. For us, uh, you know, if you ask my, my father about it, he'll say that in the 90s, uh, buy to let investors made up about a third of the market. So it's actually even less. Um, and the, the reality is, unless Irish people have a big turnaround and decide they want to live in apartments en masse, this is not going to change. So just going back to Clon Griffin, if at some point it was in your head to sell these units individually, um, could it not be said then that you overpaid for the land? Yeah, you could, you could make that argument, but I suppose our entire business plan was based around selling it as a job lot. Um, so we didn't value it on the basis of buying them individually, because if we did do that, we wouldn't have bought the land. You know, it just because the numbers don't work, we wouldn't have been able to finance the land. When we went to finance it, we said we're going to uh, build these apartments. This is what we believe we'll collect in rent. And this is what we believe the end yield will be to an investor. And we were we were right. I mean, we were we were wrong on the rent. Actually, we 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 under we under predicted the rent. It came out came out better than than we had hoped uh, on the rental side. But, you know, that's precisely what has happened. And the other projects that we're working on right now are all done on that basis because we know we can get institutional capital for well-located assets because there is a cohort of people who want to rent them. What we don't know, and what I have not seen a single example of in Dublin in the last five years, is anybody buying land for apartments, putting them there and selling them individually, making a profit. There hasn't been an example of it. And, and so when people say that cuckoo funds, uh, that these guys are cuckoo funds, they're coming in and taking these apartments away, my response to that would be, well... If there was demand there, people would, would sell apartments individually. If they could make a, a profit, why would they not do that? Um, you know, from, from our perspective, we sell one of these projects, we sell it two years in advance. So in the case of 1-3 North, uh, the, the purchaser, that has done very well on it. The, the price has, has risen in the meantime, or the rents have risen and the yields have contracted. They've done well. Had we uh, been in an environment where in, in rising markets, if we could make money selling to individual investors, we'd be selling throughout, we'd be capturing rising values the whole way through. The reason we don't do it is because we can't. There's no grand uh, plan here to, to cut people out of the market. They're just, the financing isn't there. And the financing markets are very, very difficult for people, you know, they're just, uh, they're not like they used to be. Yeah, sure. Um, we had a report there the other day from a construction consulting group um, suggesting that there's been a huge spike in uh, the number of legal challenges or judicial reviews being sought around strategic housing developments. That was an initiative that was brought in a few years ago um, by the last government to try and fast-track planning uh, for schemes with uh, 100 units or more. But it seems to be, it seems to be mired in uh, legal challenges. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm not so sure what, what, uh, what anyone's going to, to, to do about it, but it does appear that we have uh, engendered a situation here where every individual um, has a right of veto over any planning decision that's made. A lot of these challenges um, that have been have been launched, and I read a lot. I read a lot of the judgments uh, that come out. Um, a lot of the challenges are over very minor technical points. A report has been mistitled. You know, a, a measurement was missing off a drawing. Things like this. Courts are very eager to toss these um, these permissions. 
Um, and I'm not entirely sure why that would be. When we have the way our democracy is set up, we elect uh, national politicians, we elect local politicians, they write development plans, we employ uh, planners in, in our local authorities, we employ a planning appeals board. And even after all that has been exhausted, individuals, and it has to be said, individuals generally with money, because they are the ones that are taking these challenges, and they're the only ones that can afford to pay the, the legal costs, are, are, are using uh, the courts as a method of, uh, of vetoing development near them. It's a case of nimbyism gone crazy. And it's triggering an arms race now uh, in terms of lodging planning applications. I know that when, when we go to lodge a planning application now, we hire a lawyer and we say, hey, here's our planning application, tell us how you would judicially review this so that we can try and, and, and tack it off. These costs are, are, are rising uh, incredibly. We have a planning application that's lot, being lodged in a couple of weeks' time, and I think we have 42 individual reports going into it. We have a report from consultants judging whether radio waves from a mobile phone tower will bounce off the building in a way that may make 4G and 5G services unstable. They won't. We have consultants that judge whether the um, eddies that from the wind, when they hit the building, if they're going to disturb um, you know, the surrounding areas, whether the vortices that come off the winds. And this is for, you know, not a tower block. This is for a, a four-story building. Um, we have uh, reports judging as to whether people who live in the area um, will like the type of trees that we're planting in the park that's being built in the middle of the scheme. This is the level of stuff that has to be gone to now. And we know every single time we put in one of those reports, which are all required, by the way, an eagle-eyed lawyer can come along and say, well, you know, that report has a paragraph in it that doesn't directly tie in with the paragraph in another report. And so, therefore, you shouldn't get planning permission. And the courts seem to be, you know, quite open to this. So, again, at the end of the day, this serves nobody really apart from the lawyers because these, these rulings come out and they're very often not detrimental. They're very often come out and they say, you know, that report is, is wrong and it needs to be resubmitted. And then the application gets resubmitted and then it gets granted and the scheme will eventually get built. And so all it really does is introduce delay and delay costs money and costs people their lifestyle with, uh, with continually con constraining supply in the market. So, Rick, how much does it cost to employ a lawyer to uh, essentially make sure your planning application is bulletproof? I want to say, you know, a uh, thousand euros. So any lawyers listening to this don't get any ideas when they come to us with quotes. But, you know, it costs a lot. We, you know, a, a planning application now uh, costs anywhere from two to, to four thousand euros per unit uh, to, to design and submit. That's what it costs. And, you know, that, that number is going, is going up all the time. It's not going down. Nobody is, is coming around saying, you know, let's try and find a way of lowering the cost of these applications. And if, if you get refused or if Port Planola um, get judicially reviewed and the permission gets quashed, that money is largely down the drain, you know, starting, you have to start again uh, and redesign. It's out the window, yeah. At Davy, the best conversations are always more than one way. We know it's even more important to listen than it is to talk. It's how we get to know our clients personally, by listening to you carefully, 
and understanding what's important to your life, your family and your future. Then we can talk about a financial life plan that will suit you best. Davy, it's not just business, it's personal. Janie Davy, trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. The government is planning to, or has uh, banned co-living uh, units. They were quite controversial. They were subject to a lot of objections uh, locally. We, we've seen that with a lot of schemes. What's your view on that? What's your view on co-living, uh, Rick? We're not in the in the co-living business at all. Uh, you know, all of our apartments in Investor are all private kitchens, private bathrooms, and they're twenty percent above the minimum size standards. So that'll give you a, a background to what our views on on the idea of of cramming people into small spaces are. I will say this, other cities um, have quite successfully integrated co-living into their downtown cores. Um, it provides options to people, younger people who want to save some money and are not placing a big premium on space. I think the idea of having it just everywhere uh, doesn't make sense to me. Um, but again, the reaction to just ban it is akin to what happened with the port tunnel when the super trucks weren't going to fit in it and the, this, the simple response is, well, just ban the super trucks. Instead of saying, well, why are we banning it? Well, what's, really, um, what's really at the heart of this? Um, and again, to me, it just seems like there's entrenched interests, people who already own housing in areas and they want them to stay low density. They like the fact they can get a seat on the dart and they don't want to see density come into their areas. And look, if that's what we want as a country, fine. But, you know, there's a lot of young people here who are coming up out of college who are not getting the life that they were perhaps promised by our grand society, who are not earning uh, very high wages and who need low-cost uh, ways of housing themselves while they're getting, getting themselves sorted out in life. Co-living has probably got a part to play in it. I don't know if... If, if it should be a panacea and, and placed everywhere, it certainly wouldn't be yeah. my idea. And Rick, there's a property developer, you might have heard of him, Johnny Ronan, and he's proposed a 45-storey residential scheme for Dublin's North Docklands, which would be twice as high as the tallest one that's currently in the state, which is Capital Dock across the river. That's 22, 23 uh, storeys. Very fine building. But 45-storey residential towers, do we need those in Dublin? Um, I don't, you know, I, I haven't seen Johnny Ronan's business plan, so, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, it is a fine building. I think it's a, it's a beautiful design. It's, it's at a gateway into the city uh, from coming from the East Coast. Um, whether the economics of it stack up, I hope they do. Um, I hope it gets planning um, because I, I feel like on a principal level, uh, we need to shatter this idea that uh, we can achieve our objectives with low-rise development. We can't. It's that simple. There's lots of land, but Dublin is small. We need to stop um, comparing ourselves uh, to a host of other European cities and saying we're low-rise. If we want to have proper public infrastructure, we need to build up. And the way I don't necessarily agree with, with everything that uh, the Ronan Group um, has done ever, but the way in which uh, their approach has been treated by the city council has not, in my view, been correct. Um, the, this, this holy grail of the development plan wanting to have 10 or 11 stories in what is meant to be a European, an important European city 
is silly, uh, particularly down in the Docklands where you don't have large uh, Georgian squares or, or architecture that's that's worthy of much protection and where tall buildings can fit in. It's pretty much the only part of the city core where that's possible. And I, I feel like that there needs to be a sea change of attitude there. So whether whether we need 45 stories, I don't know. Um, I know that other, other cities, Manchester, have buildings that tall. Manchester is smaller than Dublin. And uh, they manage... Uh, to 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 base their infrastructure around densification, and we should be doing the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, Rick, if there was one thing the government could do that would make your life easier, if you like, as a property developer, what would it be? Well, my life isn't hard, uh, Kieran. Um, so I, I think that the government have have many pressing challenges to attend to that are, uh, reach certainly beyond the priority of property developers and what we need. I would say that if if they had one thing to do. Uh, it would be planning. Um, there needs to be some level of consequence to the behavior of third parties in, in the planning system. It is not fair on people of middle incomes who are waiting for housing to be developed, for that housing to be delayed because wealthy people can go and hire a lawyer uh, and hold it up. I just think that is unjust um, and if it were me and I had total control, I would turn around and say, you know what, um, it stops with Bord Planola. Unless there's some major breach of European law, oh, it stops with Bord Planola. And things like small reports, missing paragraphs or, or being mistitled, that they could be uh, remediated um, and that there'd be, there'd be a, a lawful basis for that. But th- this has to stop. Um, this is class warfare. Uh, dressed up as uh, as justice, and, and there's nothing just about it. And finally, Rick, everybody's trying to figure out what the future is going to look like post-pandemic, and in particular, the uh, advent of remote working. Um, do you think that people are going to go back to the offices in the way they did pre-pandemic? And if we're going to have the hybrid model that everybody seems to be talking about, what's that going to mean in terms of the housing needs of the future, in terms of the kind of units, whether apartments or, or houses, that are built by people like yourself? Well, to deal with the first part, are people going to go back to offices? I think they will, largely. The FT had ran a, ran something a, a couple of months ago recounting all the times that they called the death of the office uh, over the years, with the fax machine and with email and with Skype and all these things. I think what people are starting to realise a year into the pandemic is that the office is not really just a place for work. It's a place for interaction and we're all at home today. I don't know about you, but the, the cat is, is starting to talk to me uh, after a year uh, of, of not interacting with people. And I, I think that's a real struggle. The hybrid model, it appears that there are a lot of advantages to that. There's certainly a lot of people that perhaps don't need to be in an office five days a week and could save a lot of time in commuting and commuting and things like that by being at home. Will that impact on housing design? It could to an extent think the idea that every uh, home or apartment that's designed will have a home office is probably is probably not correct. We have some um, properties invested that include a home office. They were very popular. If I had 20 more of them, would we rent them? I'm not so sure because obviously they're bigger and so they're going to have a slightly higher cost. I think that, um, you know, if you look at, at other, again, look at other countries where home working is perhaps a little bit more normified than, than it was here in Ireland. There is a proportion of housing that has 
has home offices. I think it, it could be a, advantageous to do that, or it could be advantageous to have um, apartments a little bit more dynamic in their design. So things like studio apartments, they're doing some very interesting things in, in London uh, with micro living where, you know, an apartment, a bed flips into the wall and, on you know, a desk flips down from under the bed. So, you know, the, you're kind of changing your bedrooms, disappearing for the day and it's creating an office. I think things like that could start to be interesting for people because the fact that you would you would sleep in your bedroom and work in your bedroom is obviously not tenable for people. So there need to be some changes. I'm just not sure that it's going to be as wide ranging as is maybe predicted. Rick, just before I let you go, I should ask you where you think house prices are going to go uh, in in Ireland and rent prices as well. Uh, an easy one to finish on. Yeah, easy one. I'll get shot um, by by everyone in the industry for saying this. Um, I feel probably both are, are flat, you know. Um, there's been a lot of demand for housing. The demand for housing doesn't change because it's a pandemic, right? People still having babies, they're still getting married. You know, things are changing for them and they need to move house. So there's been a lot of demand. Counterpoint to that, it's been very hard to sell housing, very hard to hold viewings. So there's been like supply, demand dichotomy there for a while. And you also have the, the lack of supply generally, which has driven house prices. There's got to be some economic consequences to the pandemic in terms of growth, in terms of employment. To me, that puts a little bit of a break on house prices. I don't think they're going to fall, to be honest, because I just think that the demand and supply uh, issue there is too great for them to fall. With rents, it depends how quickly uh, travel comes back. You know, in 2019, there were about 3,000 people a month net coming into the, into the, the country. That was roughly, uh, most of that was in Dublin. Um, so that was driving a lot of demand for rent. If that comes back, I, I think we're going to see rent spike because the construction shutdown has meant that there's been so many projects delayed. There's not going to be the on-streaming of, of rental apartments that was expected. And then the tourism thing will come back and eat up a lot of the Airbnb supply. If travel doesn't come back, I think rents are flat. They'll probably fall in core city center areas, very high-end stuff. I know that they've... Fiona Redden has a, an article in today's paper about the, the challenges that they've had in the city centre. But again, it's all travel dependent. This idea that people are only going to live in the suburbs to me is crazy. You know, when cities come back, and they will come back as they always do, people want to be in walking distance to the bar, to the concert, to the theatre, even just to be near to the friends. And I think, I think it all comes back eventually. But as John Maynard Keane said, in the long run, we're all dead. So let's hope... Uh, Let's hope it's a little bit shorter than that. Yes, indeed. Okay, Rick Larkin of Twinlight Construction, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Karen. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Rick Larkin for joining the show. Thanks also to our sponsor, David Group, for its continued support. Suzanne Brennan produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next week, take care and stay safe.